Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. I'm Robin Wigglesworth, the U.S. Markets Editor at the Financial Times. We start the second episode of our series on sovereign debt restructuring in Argentina, a land of succulent beef, passionate tango, handy footballers, and a fraught relationship with creditors. A century ago, Argentina was one of the wealthiest countries in the world, but economic and financial mismanagement had led to a long decline in a series of painful crises. The last one took place in 2001, and it was a bad one. An economic crisis, coupled with a currency pegged to the US dollar, dwindling reserves and a heavy burden of dollar-denominated debt proved a toxic mix. By the end of 2001, the country defaulted on over $80 billion of bonds. At the time, it was the biggest sovereign debt default in history. It was kind of interesting because as of about 2000, it was pretty clear that the country had too much debt and too few resources to service it. That's Hans Humes, the head of Greylock Capital, a hedge fund, and one of the members of Argentina's creditors committee. So I think a lot of the more sophisticated analysts in the market could see a debt crisis coming. Unfortunately, the government buried its head in the sand, turning what could have been a painful but solvable problem into an epic crisis that continues to reverberate today. Governments generally don't want to let on that they're you know, stuck in a bind. And you often see things that look like they possibly could be a liquidity issue instead of a solvency issue build up and, you know, become very solidly a solvency issue. So, you know, you'd gone through a number of steps where the country had privatized industries, was locked into the dollar, and just borrowed more and more. However, what makes Argentina a special case in the annals of sovereign debt restructuring? Why its crisis continues to echo is how the country handled the situation and the subsequent fallout. A country in this situation might sit down with its creditors and attempt to reach an amicable restructuring agreement. But in Argentina's case, the government shunned its bondholders and railed against foreign creditors. It wasn't until 2005, under the government of Nestor Kirchner, that Argentina made a punitive offer of repaying creditors about 30 cents for every dollar they were owed. Given the difficulty of suing countries, most lenders reluctantly felt forced to accept the lowball offer, but many were livid. They really went out of their way to antagonize everybody. I mean, there were, you know, accusations coming out of the Argentines of, you know, the official sector and the private sector, you know, acting in cahoots or conspiring against them, which is completely unfounded. However, a significant minority of creditors felt aggrieved enough to sue instead. 
Remember Professor Arturo Porozakansky, one of the economists I spoke to last episode? He told me that the unholy legal mess that followed started with Argentina's own unwillingness to negotiate in good faith. The reason why there has been uh, a lot of litigation and also a lot of uh, arbitral procedures against Argentina is because Argentina really departed in 2002-2003 and the years thereafter from a lot of the uh, premises that had led investors to buy bonds issued by Argentina in the 1990s. Sovereign restructurings are always painful, but there are some generally accepted principles that most countries adhere to. They talk to creditors in good faith and try to reach reasonably amicable agreement on a reasonable amount of debt relief. Argentina did nothing of the sort. For example, the way the default was handled, uh, the way there were no negotiations. There was a perception at the time, proven right uh, by later events, that the debt relief that the Argentine authorities were insisting upon was exaggeratedly high. The way also many foreign uh, direct investors, strategic investors in Argentina, who ended up filing claims in ICSID and other fora against Argentina, the way their prices were frozen, the way their remittances were not allowed to take place, the way they, various contracts were broken. In other words, it was such a radical departure from best practice in how to nurture foreign investment, either equity foreign investment or fixed income foreign investment, that uh, so many parties felt injured, felt insulted, actually. That is what prompted the wave of litigation and arbitration that continues to this day. Among the creditors that decided to sue rather than settle were ordinary Argentine, German and Italian savers who bought the bonds thinking that they were a safe investment. But the fiercest was a cabal of hedge funds with plenty of experience in bruising legal battles. A chief among them was a hedge fund called Elliott Management, a firm led by former lawyer Paul Singer that already boasted a ferocious reputation for suing countries. Hans Humes again. You know, they're very, very smart guys. You know, the thoroughbreds in this. The people I know there are as sophisticated as you get in this, you know, area. They know the law. They play hardball. I don't think it's a really viable business model for most other firms. You know, they just, they played this kind of role in a number of different situations, so they're used to it. Suing countries is a tough business. When they borrow domestically, governments can always change the law to suit their purposes. It wasn't until the 1970s that it became possible to sue countries that defaulted on their overseas borrowings. Even then, it's phenomenally difficult to force countries to pay up if they really don't want to. Yes, you will have your legal remedies, uh, but sovereigns typically keep very few assets in the name of the sovereign outside of their own jurisdiction. And what is there, like the embassies and consulates and military property, is, is clothed by law with a special immunity. That was Lee Bukait, one of the most experienced sovereign debt restructuring lawyers, who is currently leading Argentina's negotiations with Elliott and its other creditors. So the sovereign, implicitly or explicitly, is saying to the creditors invited to participate, we can't command you, but consider the alternative. 
all sovereign debt restructurings invite a comparative analysis. <laughs> it is not the beauty of what we're offering you. It is the ugliness of your alternative. Elliot had developed a lucrative sideline in being a holdout. In other words, buying the debt of a country in default and suing for the full repayment. There are holdouts in virtually every sovereign debt restructuring, but most of the time they're so inconsequential that a country simply pays them off. But in Argentina's case, the government refused to do so, starting over a decade of legal skirmishes across the world. Elliot and its cohorts were able to notch up some legal victories, at one point even temporarily seizing an Argentine Navy sailing ship visiting Ghana. But it mattered little when Argentina resolutely refused to pay up even when ordered to do so by foreign judges. Here's Arturo again. They have actually obtained judgments, mostly in federal courts in the United States, against Argentina. But as we all suspected, it's one thing to win a judgment before an impartial judge in, say, London or New York. It's a whole other thing to actually collect from a sovereign. And Argentina early on engaged in a number of practices to husband its international reserves away from the hands of potential successful uh, litigants. And uh, it's, it's been virtually impossible for anybody to execute on those judgments. All bonds have various clauses limiting what a borrower can or cannot do. And an innocuous one is called pari passu which means, in Latin, that creditors should be treated equally. In practice, it has for centuries only mattered in corporate debt, where it stipulates that lenders should rank equally when a company is wound down and its assets divvied up. Countries, on the other hand, cannot be pushed into administration. But Elliot argued that the pari passu clause should be interpreted to mean that Argentina could not continue to pay its other creditors whilst continuing to jilt the holdouts. Here's Mary Childs, a U.S. hedge fund correspondent, to explain what happened then. U.S. judge Thomas Grizet was fed up with Argentina after years of having to deal with all these lawsuits. So not only did he agree with Elliot, but he also slapped an injunction against anyone, quote, aiding and abetting Argentina to evade his order. This was effectively the nuclear option. Banks that normally transferred the country's interest payments to bondholders were suddenly prevented from doing so by Judge Grizet's order. It was effectively a financial blockade of Argentina. So, when the U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear Argentina's appeal, it left the government with the unpalatable choice between defaulting on all its creditors again or to pay the holdouts. But the administration of Cristina Fernandez Kirchner, who succeeded her husband as Argentine president, would rather default again than pay a peso to the hedge funds she called vultures and financial terrorists. So in 2014 the country defaulted on all its foreign debts again, for the eighth time in its history. But last year, the story took yet another turn. In November, the reformist Mauricio Macri won power in Argentina, and curing the default was a major part of his platform. So this year, the new Argentine government has reached a series of expensive but promising agreements with its holdout creditors, including Elliot. Basically, the trial of the century for sovereign debt could soon be drawn to a close. However... The episode has refocused attention on professional holdouts, which critics often like to call vultures, for snapping up the defaulted debt of countries and suing for the full amount. The concern is that Elliot's success 
can embolden other investors to pursue similarly stubborn approach in the future. And now they'd be armed with this weaponized bond clause that still exists in a lot of sovereign bonds floating around the world. I spoke to Anna Gelpin, a law professor at Georgetown University, about why the Paripasu ruling was such a big deal. But in a world where the only remedy is blocking all flows from the debtor to all of their other creditors, well, then all of a sudden it becomes a problem, right? It's grinding the payments to a standstill that uh, really gets everybody's attention. Now, it's important to stress that the Argentine situation is pretty unique. Argentina was a uniquely difficult debtor. Elliot was a uniquely stubborn creditor. And the presiding judge was uniquely fed up with the whole thing. Paripasu clauses also vary from bond to bond, and it's unclear whether other judges would make a similarly powerful ruling. So we simply do not know for sure what the long-term impact will be, except that it probably won't be good. I think that uncertainty is still the place where we are. Right? I think very honestly, um, it's obviously not sustainable, just even at a basic analytical level. You can't have everybody blocking everything. That just doesn't work. So holdout strategies, free rider strategies, by definition, are minority strategies. The question is how many people are going to try to do it and how many times is it going to work, just like with any arbitrage, right? How many times is it going to work before it stops working? This may sound like a minor little legal imbroglio but it could have profound implications for countries in distress. Some fear the system may be totally wrecked if enough people now decide to play the holdout game, upsetting the delicate balance of a sovereign debt restructuring. Even the Pope has suggested that now may be a time to revisit a bankruptcy court for countries. The United Nations General Assembly even voted for one last year, even though it had no power to introduce it. Luckily, there have been some important moves towards addressing some of the issues raised by the Argentine debacle in recent years. Something we'll explore in our next episode. I'm Robin Wigglesworth. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced and edited by Amy Keane.